morning. Hey, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, one of the guys who gets to, to speak when, uh, when Greg is out writing and speaking, actually his band performed at a wedding last night. And so uh, he's out of town for the weekend on vacation. And so it's my turn. So, yeah, I'm glad to be with you. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I have a wound on my chin. It's not anything on the screen or anything on the camera. It's not a very glorious story. If it was, I w- you know me, I would have told you all about it in great detail. Um, I skinned it on the bottom of a swimming pool on a little vacation to Chicago this weekend with my, uh, with my family. So that's not interesting at all, but that's what that is. Um, I was in Chicago this last weekend, uh, and I got to take in a baseball game. And it got me thinking about the first professional baseball game I ever went to. Um, I think you guys know I'm a, I'm a native of California, um, the land that God really loves, you know? <laughs> and uh, my first baseball game was at, uh, at Dodger Stadium. And I remember kind of walking out and just, you know, being amazed that these, like, you know, these guys that I looked up to that played baseball were, like, live right there in front of me. And there was, like, something magical about it because... Um, have, have many of you seen the movie Sandlot or know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know that movie. Okay, lots of us, right? That was basically, like, my childhood. Um, I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing. Did you know in some places of the world, like California, you can play baseball for 12 months of the year? told you God loves it there. Although now there's no water there. So like we're putting that to the test, right? Um, I moved to Chicago uh, about, about 12 years ago. And one of the things I noticed when I got to Chicago is that people who are from Chicago love Chicago and love to tell you about how amazing it is. Have you met any of these annoying Chicago people yet? Podcasters from Chicago, my apologies there. One of the things that they talked about, like everyone talked about how amazing like Wrigley Field and Cubs baseball was, right? And so I, I would be moderately annoyed and tell them like, you know, I, I, I've watched baseball at Dodger Stadium in Southern California. How much better does it get? And so one time a friend of mine said, hey, I've got some tickets. You should come. And uh, I showed up at, at Wrigley Field and, you know, walked into the stadium and I, I totally got it. Like there's something that's magical about that place in spite of the fact that the baseball that gets played on that field has been terrible for a century or more, right? It's been bad. Um, and it's amazing. It's like palpable. You can feel it. I, I was at this game, and uh, this last week, I, I took my kiddos to go there, put a picture of us up on Facebook, and I thought about it for a second. Like, there was something different about being at this baseball game, and then I realized what it was. What's different about it is, like, for the first time in years... The, the, Cubs, uh, the Cubs are relevant in the playoff picture past, you know, like May 5th. You know, that's, that's how bad it usually is. Like, you get a sense from this group of people, it's like palpable. Like, they're trying to recapture the magic of the championship, you know. Um, we're in this mixtape series right now. We're picking out verses uh, between Greg and I, um, verses that, uh, that speak to us, um, I would say that the section of scripture that we're going to talk about today, single-handedly, for me, uh, is the most captivating snapshot we get um, in the scripture, for me. It's, it, not only like, it not only moves me, it like stirs me deeply. And I realized that um, like since I was in high school, giving my time and energy and life and gifts uh, to continue this particular story is something that's been... Um, that's been captivating for me in my life. And I wanted to share it with you. 
Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 42. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen. This is the NIV version, and I'm going to read off of it. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, we're going to pause right there. That word fellowship, um, growing up in the church that I grew up in, the word fellowship, uh, it was, there was like a time period in between the early, like the early traditional service and the later contemporary service. In between there, there was a little break that was called fellowship time. And primarily what happened at fellowship time is like that was the appropriate smoke break for people in between the two services. It was a Presbyterian church, and so it's okay for people to smoke in between the services. <laughs> Usually the guys would kind of gather together with a cup of coffee, and for about seven minutes, using about five grunting words, they would like talk to each other about something happening at work or some project they were working on in the garage. After those like seven meaningful words over a cigarette, that was the end of fellowship time at that church. I want you to know the word fellowship means something deeper than that in the book of Acts. Um, The word that, uh, the Greek word there is koinonia. And we're going to see, as we see what the church was doing because of this kind of fellowship, that that it's much deeper than that. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. We use that terminology in our culture, like we're going to get together and have a meal together. And they certainly did that. Although at each meal that they shared together, there was also a key symbolic moment. You know, you, you can't say breaking of bread around Christians and not evoke some pretty deep imagery of the night that Jesus was betrayed, the last night he had with his disciples. And he took some bread, remember this scene? And he said, this is, this is symbolic of what's going to happen to my body. It's going to be broken. And this cup is a new covenant. We're, we're going to be bonded together in a way that's different and miraculous. This early church, they got together for meals and they broke bread together and they remembered that this was the group of people that came into being because Christ's body was broken and because there was a new covenant. They were devoted to the teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And I want you to notice in these upcoming verses how often you hear the phrases, everyone, all, every day. Here's the first one. Everyone was filled with awe. Man, I, the, um, the thing that stirs me about this story and about this picture is um, it's like what happens to a group of people when being together as part of the church, it, it causes everyone to be in awe of the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Let's keep going to verse 44. All the believers were together. How many of them were together? All of them were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. Man, I can't tell you how much this picture of the early church, the Acts 2 church, is moving and stirring to me. And I just want to recapture it. How can we recapture the spirit of the Acts 2 church? A couple things I want you to think about here now. Um, so the, you know, Jesus gathered a group of 12 disciples, and he pulled them together. And it's, uh, it's 
pretty well uh, established that this early group of followers of Jesus, they shared a common fund. There were some wealthier people that were part of Jesus' movement that would put money into, you know, I don't know if Jesus had a purple bucket like this, but if he did, it'd be like this. People put money in the bucket, and the early disciples lived out of what came in, in this bucket. If you remember, what did the early disciples, the first 12, what did they have to leave behind to follow Jesus? Everything. It's no mystery then that this group of 12 people that then grew to about 120 by the time that Pentecost came when they were filled with the Spirit, there's a, there's a group of 120 or so disciples who are wondering, like, what's coming next in the story of Jesus? That's a good question for Christians to ask themselves. What's coming next? Peter has the opportunity to get up and preach a sermon. Now, um, we around Woodland Hills, because our senior pastor is an incredible communicator, we know about a really great sermon, right? Yeah. This guy in the book of Acts, Peter, preached a sermon. 3,000 people came to faith on the same day. Okay, 3,000 people is this room twice. This group of 120 people had a monstrous problem. 3,000 people wanted to join, and they said, like, where do we go? Now, do you know what happened around Woodland Hills if 3,000 people got saved and they came to the hub and said, do something with us? It would be chaos, right? I want you to know this group of 120 disciples incorporated 3,000 people into their midst. And we don't get a picture from the verses that one of them got left out. That is an incredible feat. Our, our earliest ancestors, these Christians in the book of Acts, I want you to know they accomplished something great. They should be honored for that. And their work should stir us to something. Every day, these early disciples carried the message of Jesus. They carried it in the temple courts. They carried it in their homes. And Paul kind of summarized what the, what the early message of the church was in a later book where he said the, the, the central message of the gospel that they were sharing was just a real simple, straightforward statement. It was that your sins are not counted against you. And if that doesn't spark something in your heart, you might have been in church a little bit too long. Because when a normal person hears that, it does something. Your sins are not counted against you. I want you to know, I've been to lots of churches and heard lots of sermons where that's not the central message at all. In fact, it's the opposite. I've seen many Christians who live their life feeling like their sins have been counted against them and still are counted against them. And I want you to know, especially if you're new around here or even visiting today, that's not what this church believes. This church deeply believes your sins are not counted against you. I also know some other sort of voices in our culture that would, um, they, they wouldn't say that your sins are still counted against you. They might actually say that you don't have any sin. And I want you to know, that's not what this church believes. That's not what I believe. Your mom may believe that about you, but we don't. Um, and the reason why I don't believe that um, is because I have sin. I, I clearly do. And when those words that say your sin is not counted against you, when I hear those words, they stir me. They do. Um, You know, if we break this word sin down, it's just real simple and clear. It it just means missing the mark. Like, there's a target for the way that human life is supposed to be lived. There is. 
There's not a hundred thousand different ways to live it. Really, there's like one, one way. Have you heard that before? There's one way, and there's one truth, and there's one life. There's one person who lived the human experience so incredibly that thousands of years later, we're all still captivated by it. And that's the message that these early disciples were spreading. Every single day. One of the phrases that stands out to me from that Acts chapter 2 church is it talks about what their hearts were like. What was it like when they got together? I'm a pastor, and you can imagine, I've been to lots of Christian gatherings, dinner parties, conferences, worship services, small group meetings, and trainings. I really look at this picture, and I wish that I could say that most of those meetings, the general sense that I had of the group, was that we were getting together with glad and sincere hearts. I wish. But the truth of the matter is, within churches and within my own life, there's still a lot of pessimism, plenty of sarcasm, even a little irony. And I just want to say, one of the things that I would love to recapture in the Acts 2 church, in my own life and with my family and friends and in this church, is what would it mean for us to gather together and when we do for it to be palpable that this is a group of people that has glad and sincere hearts. Okay, I have a little secret for you. The spirit of the Acts 2 church that we just read about, you know that that spirit is completely available to you right now. If you're listening by podcast, wherever you are in the world, that the spirit of the Acts 2 church can be alive and well in a house church in Belgium and in a large congregation in South Africa, here at 1740 Van Dyke, in a Sojourners group. It's even available for two of you that get together for accountability time at Perkins on a Friday morning. The spirit of the Acts 2 church can fill that. It's completely available. In fact, I would say the spirit of the Acts 2 church is just waiting to be invited. But along the way, one of the things that happens when a new generation of people gets captured by the Acts 2 church, there are some radical ideas that happen in the Acts 2 church. And it's real tempting for us as human beings to romanticize what the Acts 2 church was like. It really is. We can tell ourselves some myths about this. Part of what I wanted to do in my time with you this morning is to name and dispel some of the myths of the spirit of the Acts 2 church. Okay, and here's the first one. I often hear folks talk about, especially younger folks these days, talk about how this Acts 2 church was devoted to community, right? And I just want to tell you that that's a myth. It's not true. The early church wasn't devoted to community. I want you to know that they were, uh, what they were devoted to was Jesus. And it was Jesus who pulled them together into community. And although that sounds like a small difference, famous pastor in World War II Germany named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best when he said, for people, uh, whoever loves community will kill community. Whoever loves people will create community. The early church wasn't devoted to community. They didn't get together and have like, here's a plan for how to integrate people into our life together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching about a Jesus who taught them, like, it's never okay to leave people out. They were devoted to a Jesus who had taught them the message that there's enough love to go around. We don't have to be threatened of it. There is no shortage of it. Another myth that we get from the Acts 2 church is that they had developed a different economic model. 
And I think what I would say to that is like, certainly there was a different economy that happened within that group. We get that picture because it says that they had everything in common. It says that some of them sold their possessions in order to meet need. But I don't think that they were sitting around trying to develop a different economic model. I think the truth of the matter is they saw themselves as God's new family. And when someone in your family is struggling, you meet the need. So when they saw hurting and suffering, they responded in the only way that they thought that Jesus would, which is like, it shouldn't be that mysterious for us that they responded in self-sacrifice, right? It's the symbol of our faith is the cross. I just want to make a side note here. Um, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of selling my home and moving to another neighborhood. It's kind of a big deal, right? You sell a house. Like my kids had, I have lots of memories in that house. I'm not that sentimental of a person. I get rid of things regularly that I'm not using. Even I walked around our empty house as stuff was getting moved out. And there was like kind of a, a feeling of emptiness, like this season is over. I want you to know that for a first century Christian to have sold their property meant a lot more than it means for you or I. Unless you live on like a family farm where your great-great-grandfathers worked that land for centuries, there's a connection that happens between you and like the land and the property in a case like that. And that's what it was like for these early Christians. For them to sell property was a giant sacrifice. It goes to show you that for them, koinonia fellowship meant more than a smoke break in between the traditional and the contemporary service, right? Another myth that happens around the Acts 2 church is people talk about how, how much these early Christians were trying to be radical. And I would say, although they did turn out radical, I don't think that they were trying to be. I think they were committed to continuing the work of Jesus. And it just so happens that because Jesus' life is radical, they turned out to be too. Uh, I was watching uh, an interview this week. Um, there's two brothers uh, who are third-generation restaurant owners. Uh, they inherited a restaurant from their father who inherited it from his father. Uh, the restaurant is one of the best restaurants in the country. It's named Canlis in Seattle. Um, so they were interviewing the, these two brothers. These two brothers, in their leadership of the restaurant, 16 years in a row have won the highest award that a restaurant can get. Pretty incredible feat in a business that can be as difficult as that one is. And it struck me as they started talking about what they were trying to do with their restaurant. I was like inspired. While they were talking about their restaurant, I was thinking about the church. Here's something that they said. The interviewer asked them, how is it like, you know, the restaurant business can be pretty brutal and difficult. How is it that for 16 years in a row, you guys have won the top honor for guest services? Like people rave about it at this place. And he said, oh, it's not real hard. It's real simple. We just get our staff together and we tell them, Every time someone comes to the door in our restaurant, they're, they're carrying their treasure. And they're wondering if we can be trusted with it. And the interviewer said, like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, our restaurant's busy. It's real hard to get a reservation. Um, people don't just walk by and wander into our restaurant. People come here um, to get engaged. That's, that's a treasured moment. They're not going to get a second one of those. That's a treasure they're carrying, and they're saying, like, can you be trusted with it? People come here to dinner uh, after their last chemotherapy treatment, and now they have a second chance at life. This is where they come to have dinner. That's a treasure. We all have to work together to care for it. And I thought to myself, like, people don't just wander by 
1740 Van Dyke and decide to swing in here on Sunday at 11. When people walk in the doors of a church, they're carrying treasure with them. Um, maybe you're here for the first time or second or third, and that's the way you feel. Like People come into a church because the treasure they're carrying is like need, doubt, grief, hurt, loneliness. And they walk in the doors of a church and they ask a church the question, can I, can I trust you with this? This is, a, this is a treasure. And part of recapturing the spirit of the Acts 2 church, 3,000 people joined their church in one day and there was enough love to go around and no one got left out. So these two brothers that own the restaurant also, uh, they talked about some of the difficulties of doing it as a third generation. And one of the things they decided to do was uh, they decided to change the dress code. Uh, Now, I don't eat very often at restaurants that require me to wear a certain kind of clothing. In fact, it hasn't been since I was a kid that I've done that. But I I got some respect for somebody who says, hey, this food is good enough. You need to wear a coat and tie to eat it. I can respect that. That's okay. So these guys said, you know, we we, we kept the coat, but we eliminated the tie. And they said lots of people got frustrated and said, you're messing with the tradition. Your grandfather would be ashamed. And they both said, our grandfather would be so proud. Because when our grandfather started this restaurant, it was the most cutting-edge restaurant in Seattle. And then he made an illustration. He said, when you think about the people that designed a car, they've actually done a really good job designing a car. They know what they're doing. There's a couple of devices that you have in the car that help you see, right? One of them is a big, giant piece of glass that's usually in front of you. What's this piece of glass called, friends? Windshield, right? How big is the windshield? It's pretty large, isn't it? And then he said, there's, a, uh, there's another device that's meant, it's, it's helpful at times, but it's nice to know sometimes what's behind you, right? Uh, what's the object that helps you see what's behind you in a car? Rear view mirror, right? How big is the rear view mirror? Small. I can't tell you how many churches that I've been to, friends I've talked to, um, places I've worked at, where we got it that out of order where the biggest thing about the church was what was in the rearview mirror, as if the best days of the church are behind us. You know there's a whole group of people that believe the best days of the church are over, and I want you to know I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Um, I'm glad you don't either. But this easily happens, right? Part of recapturing the Acts 2 church, the Acts 2 church had their full perspective out of, the, out of the windshield. God, what's next? What do you want to do next? I know lots of people that look in the rearview mirror at the Acts chapter 2 church and would say like, oh, I, I, I like want to go back there. I want to live back in those glory days. And I want you to know, I don't want to go back there. Um, I love a hot shower every day. I don't want to go back to first century Palestine. That's for sure. I don't want to. Um, not only that, that's not my place. You know? I want you to know that God's Spirit is active yesterday, and God's Spirit's active today, and God is moving this story forward into forever, and that's what I want to be a part of. The story is moving forward. And one of my questions as a Christian, and one of our questions as a church is, do we want to be a church that looks out the windshield, or do we want to be a church that's stuck looking in the rearview mirror? I know which one I want to be a part of. Um, last week was a momentous week. I scraped my chin on a pool. I took my kids to Wrigley Field. And then uh, last week on Sunday night, I preached my final sermon to the church that I planted six years ago. 
Um, and I cried like a baby almost the whole time. I could hardly keep it together. Um, you know, this is a group that for, uh, for six years I've, I've loved them and baptized them and dedicated their babies. And, um, you know, like the, you know, in the movies when like a main character is about to croak and like the family and friends gather and like the, it gets real melodramatic with the music and they kind of hone in on the character like because you know like the last words are really important you know um uh, i'm not gonna die and i probably will see some of those people again but i still felt like it was important like in my last sermon i want to make it count you know i want to give them a gift that will sustain them for a little while And the verse that I chose that came to mind, I felt like God gave it to me, was something that Paul said to Timothy. Paul was like a church leader who had the job of like recruiting younger leaders and trying to help them develop, kind of like interns, you know. And for Paul, in his work, you know that it went wrong as often as it went right for Paul. You know that, right? The thing I love about Paul is he didn't always get it perfect, but he like kept going and he like, he was driven. I I admire that part. If you have any questions about that, all you ever have to do is read the letters to the churches. You know, like after he planted a church, then he'd have to write a letter addressing the problems they were having and they were having monstrous problems. Sometimes I think like, Paul, you should have taken a little more time there because that church is in a mess, but he just didn't quit. He just kept going. So he writes a letter to this intern named Timothy, who's a younger leader. And so what, what he does with Timothy is what, like, what good leaders do to all young leaders when they want to motivate them. If you want to motivate a younger leader, just tell them about their grandparents. So that's what Paul did. Paul talks to Timothy and goes, man, your grandma had amazing faith. And so did your mom. And so do you. It's in there, he said. But he, then he tells him, you've got to fan it into flames because it, it can go out. Uh, and then he just he, he addresses them real specifically about the kind of spirit that God's put, not only in Timothy, not only in the church in the book of Acts, in, in you and in the church called Woodland Hills. Here's what he said. He wants to make it real clear. The spirit that God gave us, it does not make us timid. I just want you to know, when I say that word, it's half anger and half nausea. I hate that word. Is there any worse word than timid? Ugh. Here's what I said to Third Way in my last sermon. I said, if in six months or a year, what I hear is the overriding spirit of Third Way is timid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be angry. Because God did not give his church a spirit that makes them timid. What great thing has ever happened out of a place of being timid? God didn't give us that spirit. God gave us a spirit of power. But then God's really smart. Because you know what happens when God only gives people power? It gets ugly fast. But if you put power with love, right? We've seen power without love. And I want no part of that. God said, okay, I'm going to give you power, which is crazy. I don't know why he does it, but he does it. He gives us power, and then he says, with that, I'm going to give you love. You're going to have power and love. But, you know, even power and love can just go all over the place. And so he gives us power and love, and then the third that he adds to that is discipline. What a great word. Love and power and discipline. 
One of the things I love about the book of Acts is even it's the name of the book itself, like the book of action. I'm an activist, and so I love doing things. I love, like, putting my hands on things. I thought of a couple terrible titles to a book, uh, like if they would have totally gotten it wrong and not named it the book of Acts. What would happen if they named it the book of thoughts? Oh, wouldn't that be terrible? Or the book of ideas. Oh, who needs more ideas? I don't need any of that, right? The book of Acts. Um, I want you to know that in the Acts chapter 2 church, there's a radical vision, a group of people that was devoted to the teachings of Jesus, and a group of people that because of that devotion to Jesus loved each other enough that they would make giant sacrifices for each other, a church where not one single person got left out, not one, a church where every single day People were joining. People were coming to faith. That is a radical vision. That spirit is in our legacy. We are part of that story. But you can't get from here to there in like giant miraculous steps. But you can go amazing places if you just take one step at a time. What I'm going to offer is a suggestion of a few practical steps that you might take if you would like to be recaptured by the Acts 2 spirit. The first place I want to start is at the very beginning. And I just want you to know that if you're in this room and you've never fully committed your life to following Jesus, I want you to know real clear in no uncertain terms, your sins are not counted against you. They're not. And I want you to know that you can put your hand in God's hand today and follow Jesus into a new life. It's what Jesus promised. It's what I signed up for. And I want you to know, I've never regretted it. And I don't think that you will either. After the service, there's going to be people up here to pray. I'm going to be down here. If you want to take that step, I would love to meet with you and talk with you, and so would these folks. For those of you that have been following Jesus for a month or a year or a decade or more, I'd love love to know if you would seriously ask the Spirit to fan into flames the gift that God's put inside of you. I would ask you to seriously consider that, to seriously ask God for it, to mean it, and then be prepared to say yes to the wild things that a wild spirit will ask you to do. Now, in, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts and for the early disciples, we get a picture that there was, there was a financial investment in being together to care for each other's needs, and also in the mission that it was that Jesus gave them. It should always cause us to pause when we think about the earliest disciples made significant financial sacrifices to each other and to the mission. And then it just made me think about this, um, these purple or blue buckets that get, you know, passed up and down our aisles. I want you to know that this is a serious practice that churches do. It's no small thing. You know, Um, the money that goes into these buckets, it makes a lot of things happen here. Things that are really good. Um, Last weekend, uh, sewer backed up here in our building. Did you know this? Sewer backed up last week? No. Oh, it was over in the kids' wing, right? Perfect. (laughs) In the kids' wing. Um, So um, our... uh, I came on Saturday. Backup happened on Friday. I came on Saturday uh, getting ready for the services. 
and uh, Janice, our executive pastor, and then Troy, who's on our facilities team. Uh, by the time I came, they had been here for almost like three days straight with razor blades, cutting out carpet. Um, you all know what sewage is, right? So cleaning up sewage. Um, and they were doing it to get ready for the weekend because kids were going to be in here, you know? They were doing it because in the middle of the week, the gathering area was going to be full with people who were here for the food shelf, who needed help, who this church helps. I was here that day for the food shelf and walked around when the families were getting food. Woodland Hills people working out there. Um, I don't think Woodland Hills will at any point say, like, let's all put our money into a common checking account. I don't think that's happening anytime soon unless some kind of crazy miracle happens. But I will say, don't underestimate the power of this bucket to be together and to share mission, to care for human need. This is important, and I just want to ask you. Um, maybe one thing, practical step for you is, like, would you consider your level of generosity... Does your level of financial generosity, does it capture the Acts 2 spirit? And for some of you, you're doing a better job than I am. And I say, thank God for you. And to some of you guys like me, we need to think about this. Well, what more can I do to be financially generous? Either here in this bucket, there's multiple buckets I know that people from Woodland give to. And I want to honor that. Maybe you're not ready to sell your property. But if you can be more generous, then you should. Never talk to anyone who regretted being generous. Okay, another radical, crazy thing we could do. So like the early church got together for meals every day and shared communion together. And I thought, how could we recapture that spirit in a real practical way? And one of the things that I decided to challenge you guys on is, um, what if on the weekend services at Woodland Hills, what if we made a commitment that no one sits alone? People come in here and they carry this treasure. Um, I've seen people walk into this church in the front door, into the worship service, after the worship service, walk back out and back out the main doors to their car and not get talked to one time. Um, I'm not saying this to make y'all feel bad. Um, I'm saying I don't think that captures the spirit of Jesus in the Acts 2 church. I don't think that Jesus would let that happen. And I'm saying I don't think that we should either. Especially if you're a covenant member around here, covenant partner. When you come into worship, I'd love for your radar to be open to people that are sitting alone. And what if we just made a commitment like, no one sits alone unless they really want to. <laughs> then it's okay, they can, right? What if you did something radical like invited someone who you just met out to lunch after church? I, I think that would be a real practical way for the Acts 2 spirit to be alive, to break bread together. You don't have to wait for a program or ministry from Woodland Hills to build community with each other. You don't have to. The early church, 3,000 people found each other and created community. You don't need permission. Okay. Um, a couple other things, and then I'm going to wrap up. One of them is the early church was devoted to prayer. Prayer was really important. Prayer has always been important in the life of the church. And I just want to pause and ask you for a second. How's prayer going for you? I know it's hard. But Jesus warned us, like, if you come follow me, you're going to do hard, good stuff. What if we committed to, for the next seven days, 14, 30, what if we just said, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to start my day off with a time of prayer every morning? I know for some of you have been Christians for a long time, this feels like, this is like a youth group sermon, right? Because youth need to be challenged to pray every day. Adults have that down, don't we? 
Is this thing on? Am I preaching? Hello? Okay, that's it. Uh, The last thing I'm going to say is this. I think one of the significant things about the Acts 2 church that captures me, um, every single day, people found new life in Jesus. That, That moves me. And I'm, I'm asking you all, would you ask God to use you to bring someone to Christ? I want you to know that I have a list. I have a real short list of people that aren't Christians, that I'm friends with and spending time with and care about. I want you to know that I'm, I'm thinking about them when I'm working on the worship services here. That's part of my job. I think about them. I think about them when I write sermons. I want you to know that these people aren't projects to me. They're my friends. I want you to know that these friends of mine that aren't Christians are some of the most generous, kind, loving people I know. And sad to say, some of them would like run circles around Christians that I know. And I'm not saying that to like make anyone feel bad. The reason I'm saying that is Can you imagine what would happen to them if they're already this amazing? What would happen if the Spirit got a hold of them in the service of the kingdom, what they could do and be? It motivates me. I just want you to know, I deeply believe that every single person that puts their hands in the hand of Christ and walks forward in the kingdom, their life is immensely better. I believe that. I do. In the Acts 2 church, every single day someone came to life. And there was enough love to go around. And I want you to know that that captivates me. I have deep hopes for that here at my church. It's one of the reasons why I came to work here. That spirit of the Acts 2 church is alive and it's like begging. It's whispering to the church to say, we can, we can do it. I believe that it can happen. It's not going to happen overnight. I'm asking all of us if we can just take the next step because I think that's the way the kingdom grows, one step at a time. All right, would you stand with me? Let's close on a word of prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, you're, the picture that you have of the world is captivating to me. I pray in some small way it sparked something kingdom in the people that are here. Lord, all of us walked in this room with treasure, things that we carry with us. And we ask, is like, is someone trustworthy? Can someone carry this with me? Jesus, you're the most trustworthy being in the universe. The only person who's never disappointed. Pray that as a church, I pray that as a person, I can recapture the spirit of the church of Acts. And it can, it can move and propel us into the future. I pray that we as a church, we would be looking out the windshield knowing that like you've always had good things in store for your people. And when the church has struggled, it hasn't been because you've struggled, it's because we've been stubborn. I pray against church stubbornness here. Pray that we would walk forward into the future that you have. And I pray that the general tone of our church together would be that like we worship God and we care for each other and we serve We invite people into the kingdom, and we do it with glad and sincere hearts. May that be so. In your name, amen.
Have a great week.